Veni, Veni, Venias, and welcome to our podcast. Hello, and welcome to Ask Medievalist. I'm M, the Ask portion of our program, and joining me as always is Dr. Jesse Noose. Hello! So, uh, last time we talked a little bit about childbirth and child rearing, and uh, it turns out that <laughs> children are complicated? No. Um, but there's a lot to say about Probably. them. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yes. In some respects, they're, you know, they have a lot going on. So today, yes. uh, we're going to continue our conversation about about child rearing and even talk a little bit about uh, toys that kids get to play with. Yes. Toys, games. Um, yeah. But I thought we'd start, I think we sort of left off with um, the commentary that people like Philip Arias wrote most famously, other people as well, but wrote things about how um, somehow childhood is modern. Oh, yes. As though, you know, parents didn't care about their kids in the past because, you know, they didn't want to in case they died or that kids didn't have a childhood, like they didn't really get to play. And all of that is nonsense, mm-hmm. um, first of all. Uh, so, you know, just to restate that at the beginning of this one. Um, but also there's some fun things. That you might not think were the same, but of course they were. Mm-hmm. So, um, again, if you could afford it, you know, baby clothes, right? Um, they find, you know, like baby shoes. Um, we mentioned Nicholas Orm's um, medieval children book. Um, he's got a great picture of like a baby shoe that was found, you know, a medieval baby shoe. Oh. Um, and yeah, you know, if you could afford it, of course, like cute little clothes for your kids. <laughs> um, if you were noble, you know, there's stuff about like princes getting, like, little mini suits of armor. <laughs> oh. I feel <laughs> you know? like when you get to yeah. even, when you get to the early modern period, there's definitely, like, some um, portraits like that, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like, royal yeah. people had great portraits drawn of their children. Yes. And I think this might be one of the places where people have this misconception, because... Um, and actually, Orm talks about this a little bit as well. But um, the idea that somehow they're made to look like little adults, and so this is how they're expected to be. And he's like, but you know, not any more than we do today. Mm-hmm. Like, but people enjoy, how many memes or pictures have we seen of kids dressed up as, you know, Frederick Douglass or Ruth Bader Ginsburg or, you know, like, you want to oh, yeah. dress your kids up as stuff. The, the kid president, <laughs> right? That was a big thing during the Obama oh, absolutely. era. There's that. Oh, brilliantly, yeah. yes. Kid President was brilliant. Is brilliant. So, um, yeah, absolutely, right? So there's this sense of, um, you know, kids kind of as dolls, which, of course, dolls will talk about dolls. But, um, yeah, you dress up your kids because it's fun, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so whatever you can sort of afford to do, you do. Um, and if you're a, if you're nobility, of course, like a tiny suit of armor is something you want to put your kid in. There's a great portrait of um... – Marie Antoinette and her children by Elizabeth Louise uh, Viget Lebrun, where the, yes. the baby is wearing like a big feather in her little bonnet that sort of matches Marie's, yes. which yes. is great. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Right. And so there's definitely this sense. Um, and speaking of, uh, I don't know, we this for some other episode when we talk about art, I guess. Um, yeah. But yeah, Laverne, I think, recently had some um, exhibitions, you know, sort of specifically for her and things. She's been um, 
I mean, she, she never wasn't famous. Right. The reminder, again, that, like, women did stuff. <laughs> um, basically. Yes. <laughs> anyway. Um, but, yeah, absolutely, right? So there's this sort of really interesting sense of just remembering that, obviously, um, you know, lots of things were similar. Yeah, so baby clothes, dressing your kids up um, as, yeah, as yourself or as other adults you admired, um, wanting to see them in these cool styles. You know, you might even dress them up in styles like you couldn't afford for you, but you can make them a little dress that looks like, you know, whoever's. Mm -hmm. um, I can yes. attest to this. I'm not much of a... <laughs> I'm not good at sewing clothing because it has to work in three dimensions, but I have made little jackets occasionally because it does not take too long to make one that's like, you know, the size of a baby instead of the size of an adult. Yes. And you don't have to set the colors quite as well and all of these things. No, right. you don't so, get any complaints. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, right, so there's this very interesting sense of kids' fashion and, you know, what it does. So yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's just a sort of side note on that. Um, you know, uh, of course, also for very small children, you know, swaddling was definitely the way to go, both for purposes of warmth and safety. You know, you mm -hmm. kept them from moving around too much because there are open fires, there are hearths, there are, you know, all these things. Um, so, you know, it had a variety of purposes. Um, but yeah, so as they get older, um, and also, you know, you have things like lullabies. Um, so, of course, you sing to them at any age, but then, of course, as they get older, they also learn lullabies and nursery rhymes and things like tongue twisters. So all of that is something I thought I'd we'd go over those a little bit because those are like, you know, those are always classic, but also quite yes. fun. I'm excited to hear what people sing to their children that isn't like Ziggy Stardust because yes. I don't <laughs> know the lyrics to that many other songs, to be honest. Right. Well, um, to be fair, like the word lullaby, um, you know, the lule, various forms of lule mm -hmm. are very prevalent in lullabies. Um, and the Coventry Carol, which is like kind of one of the, the best known Coventry being, of course, a place in England. I sang that in choir in high school, which mm -hmm. was yeah. probably a good time to do it because nowadays I would probably start crying. But, you yes. know. <laughs> well, you know, and this is, of course, it's a the, it's the version that we know comes from a nativity play um, from the 1500s. So, and the, sort of the early 1500s, um, and the oldest, the melody that we know, um, I think sort of the earliest version is for the late 1500s. Um, so that is a very old version, but it is also very representative of, um, you know, the sort of lule, 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 <laughs> mm -hmm. lullaby. Um, so, you know, one that Orm has... And these, the, again, these tend to get written down a little bit later, so 14, 1500s generally. And you do frequently get them written down in terms of, like, a nativity. Um, sometimes it might be suggested, like, the Virgin saying them to Jesus. Um, so, you know, who, of course, is the ultimate baby. <laughs> yes. But also, in a way, like, he's he's also an adult at the same time. Right? Yes. I mean, sort of. There's this really interesting sense of um, the baby 
Jesus as being a very real baby. Um, which is why we you know we talked we've talked before about um, devotion to the child. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that this is something that women felt particularly um, close to, basically, right? Um, and that's kind of why you imagine him not just as your child, but you imagine yourself as the virgin taking care of this child, that this is something that women know, right? Women have had children, women have swaddled them. So you imagine like swaddling him, singing him lullabies, right? All the things you would do to a real baby, hmm. which he was. <laughs> so they think they actually think about him as a real baby, like yes. complete with like the crying and the diapers and all the baby stuff that you do. Yes, absolutely. Right. This is kind of the point. Huh. Um, and this is the point of him having been mortal, is that he lived that. Yeah. Okay. So he's understanding of, you know, but also why you would pray to him. He's understanding of, like, childhood accidents, but also forgiving, but then, you know, hopefully he'll save your child, or he'll forgive you, or things like this. Um, hmm. But yeah, so one that Orm has here. Um, Lule, Lulao, Lule, Lule. Dewey, Bui, Luli, Luli. Um, Lule, Bow, Bow, my bairn. Sleep softly now. Right. So it's very much a sort of silly kind of baby talky. Okay. Right. Yeah. Um, which is why also this is something else that Orm points out, that baby talk has probably been around forever. Um, and that, yeah, you know, it sort of gets turned into lullabies. Um, there are others that are slightly more, you know, like Lule, Lule, my little child, sleep and be still now. Um, if thou be a little child, yet thou may have thy will. Um that's part of sort of the same one. So anyway, so that's, you know, a little more like mm-hmm. Coventry Carol. It has actual lyrics. Um, but there is this sort of sense of, yeah, lullabies, you know, they're more sort of syllables to hum a tune to, right, than necessarily. Um, and sure. that's, of course, different from what we might think of as kind of um, nursery rhymes, um, which tend to be a little more nonsense. <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. here's a fun early one that how early is a little unclear. Um, it's suggested that it could be from, like, the 7th century. Um, it gets written down, of course, in the 13th century <laughs> is when we've got it. So mm-hmm. who is to say, really? But certainly it's medieval. Um, and this is a sort of nonsense. Um, Dinoged's coat is speckled, speckled. I made it from Martin's pelts. Whistle, whistle a whistling. When your father would go hunting with the staff on his shoulder and club in his hand. He would call his hounds, gif, gaff, catch, catch, fetch, fetch. He would kill a fish in his coracle, as when the lion slays. When your father would go to the mountain, he would bring back a roebuck, a wild sow, a stag. All right. And that sort of goes on. Um, hmm. So a sort of story and a little bit nonsense. Yeah. Right. It has a nice, um, a nice rhythm to it. Yes. Um, and then there's sort of other ones that are like, that we kind of recognize, right? Like the cat jumped over the moon. Of course, as a modern. Um, so here's Clim Clam, the cat leapt over the dam. Um, my dame hath in a hutch at home a little dog with a clog. The hare went to the market, scarlet for to sell. The grain hound stood before him, money for to tell. All right, so those are some animal ones. Hmm. Um, here's one with a person that you might have heard of. Um, Henry Hotspur hath a halt, and he is falling lame. Francis' physician for that fault swears he was not to blame. Nice. Yay. Yep. And then, um, here, I'll go with this one too. A white horse up the hill, a black horse down the hill, a gray horse in a gravel way, and a brown bay is best at all a say. All right. So, you know, um, this sort of fun of nursery rhymes, they're a little bit nonsense. They sort of have a story, 
It also shows that, like, the presenting of animals as sort of, like, a cute, fun thing for children goes way back. Yes. And I was actually... As opposed to, like, animals are for work and we're going to present... I don't know, moral tales of humans yeah. to... Well, and also you eat animals. But it's funny yeah. because, actually, that's just rereading Terry Pratchett's Hogfather. Um, and Death, at one point, is in a nursery looking at the wallpaper that has, like, mm-hmm. little rabbits and waistcoats and stuff. And, you know, yes. I mean, you're imagining, of course, Beatrix Potter. Um, and Death is thinking to himself about why, you know, as far as he knows, humans only are interested in animals like rabbits to eat. Why are they putting them on children's wallpaper all dressed up cute? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and he's thinking that if he could only understand this, he would understand a lot more about people. Um, yes, in fact, this is sort of the point, right? Um, and there is, um, Orm has a picture from a manuscript, an you know, illuminated manuscript, um, where there's this sort of motif of um, rabbits hunting boys. <laughs> <laughs> Which, of course, is topsy-turvy, wow. right? Yes. Um, but that's, of course, the point of nursery rhymes, right? There's this sort of topsy-turvydom. Yeah, so animals sort of doing things that people do um, in fun rhymes. Yeah, is sort of part of the fun. And if you do get, same as, you know, dogs, rabbits, <laughs> mice. Um, yeah, right. All the sort of same animals that we're kind of used to today in nursery mm-hmm. rhymes. Um, another sort of interesting thing um, is as you get sort of a little bit older, right, nursery rhymes start to turn into things a little bit like tongue twisters. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, so (laughs) yay. Ready for this one? Let's see if I can get this right. Um, This is from like the 1400s or so. Um, Three gray greedy geese flying over three green greasy furs. That's furrows, but it says, you know, furs. Um, the geese was gray and greedy. The furs was green and greasy. Yes. All right. Ah. <laughs> so three gray, greedy geese flying over three green, greasy furs. The geese was gray and greedy. The furs were was green and greasy. <laughs> um, all right. So, you know, th- and the reason, of course, is these are elocution lessons. I mean, they're still used as acting exercises today. Right, there's mm-hmm. a you know a wide variety of sort of known tongue twisters, um, but in addition to that, there these also start to turn into sort of um, poems, right? Um, and they're really good exercises for kids to say, to learn to enunciate, right? To sort of learn to to speak, um, and some nonsense poems, and eventually actual you know sensible poems, um, also get used for things like translation exercises. Um, so, uh, Chris Cannon from Literacy to Literature, England, 1300 to 1400, um, has a whole sort of section on poems that are listed today as kind of early English poems. And by early English, I mean really middle English, (laughs) Mm -hmm. not old English, but, um, because you have this sort of rise of vernacular poetry, right? Sort of Chaucer and, um, Yes. yes, around him. Um, and he is, of course, not alone. You have, like, Piers Plowman as well, and a wide variety of things. Um, but this sense of English really becoming a vernacular that's worth writing in. Um, the interesting thing is that a lot of the poems that sort of get popped out are found, just as most of the things I've actually just recited are found, in school books. So these are, like, some kids' notebooks that were never destroyed, <laughs> basically. Oh. Yeah. 
Um, and a lot of these are clearly just snippets of things, longer things that were copied down for the kid to translate into Latin. Uh-huh. Uh, and frequently you get the translation there, right, in Latin. Um, sometimes it's something that presumably the teacher set as an exercise. Sometimes it's mm-hmm. something the kid themselves might have copied down to translate. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that Canon suggests that's sort of obvious is that, I mean, it's, I agree with him in the sense it's obvious. I do not mean it was obvious before he suggested this. <laughs> um, but is the idea that then, of course, this also encouraged... I'm saying kids, but now we're sort of starting to grow up a little bit. We're hitting our tweens and our, you know, mid-teens when you're starting to Mm -hmm. think towards adulthood. Um, That this is the sort of thing that also would have encouraged them to write their own stuff, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. to write in English. You could always translate it into Latin. But there is also the sense of the importance, not just of the Latin, but also of the English, right? Um, And so you might come up with your own things that you would then translate as exercises. Um. And so there's some really interesting ones. Um, one, I thought I'd mention this because we've sort of run into this before, is that the earliest example of a quotation from a poem on Robin Hood, um, as far as we know, survives only in a school book from Lincoln Cathedral. And the I'm sort of going to do it in modern English because, I mean, it's uh, Robin Hood and Sherwood stood hooded and hatted and hosed and shod. I've modernized the pronunciation. So... Hosed, right, he's in a hood and a hat and hose, of course, because that's what you wore, not pants exactly, um, and shoes, right? Shod, he's shod. And four and twenty arrows he bore in his hands, right? Hmm. Um, and then, in fact, the kid did translate that into Latin. <laughs> so, you know, we have, we have this, so, you know, this is how we know that Robin Hood in Sherwood was already around in England, As a story, because some kid happened or was either set the exercise or just happened to copy down a snippet from this poem to translate as an exercise. Um, And so, (laughs) ta-da! Earliest known sort of mention of of Robin Hood. Um, Yeah, so there's this sort of interesting commentary on sort of, you know, where these things come from. Um, Another example that gets set... um, as exercises that becomes a sort of famous phrase, essentially. Um, when Adam delved and Eve span, meaning spun, right? Who was then a gentleman. Okay. Which, of course, is a commentary, is a class commentary. <laughs> um, right? Nobody had mm-hmm. arms, so to speak. There are jokes about this in Shakespeare, of course. Right? The gravediggers. How could he dig without arms? Oh, but yes. of course, Which, of course, is a joke, because... He has actual physical arms, not a coat of arms, right? Um, and Walsingham, Thomas Walsingham tells us um, that John Ball took this verse. This is sort of everywhere, but um, Cannon talks about it in this specific context um, to sort of, you know, start his revolt, basically, in 1381. Oh. Um, and the idea that this is the sort of thing that would turn up in an exercise, right? It's definitely the sort of thing that students would notice, right? It's literature mm-hmm. has always been political, right? And so you imagine as a student being like, huh, this is a good point. <laughs> Why do we have nobility? <laughs> Adam and yes. Eve didn't have nobility. Interesting. We are all descended from Adam and Eve. Aren't we all supposed to be equal? So our institutions of learning have always been hotbeds of 
communism and corrupting our youth. Yes. Basically. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) That is 100% the point. Um, And yeah, is a fantastic sort of commentary, right? On um, learning. This is what it is, right? Yes. Teaches you also, of course, that poetry is important. The arts have something to say. Um, But yeah, so that definitely, right? It's the sort of thing kids would notice and be like, oh, I too could write something like this if I wished, Mm -hmm. right? Um, There's another fun one that's written down um, that reminds me a little bit of um, The Lion and the Unicorn, which of course is a modern poem (laughs) by Lewis Carroll, alias, of course, Lewis Carroll, um, which is a poem very similarly, right? But in a modern sense, a poem he made up about, you know, the two animals in the English, you know, coat of arms fighting it out. Um, And there's sort of this interesting sense of the history, basically, um, behind poems like that. Um, So here's this one. (laughs) Um, So the cricket and the grasshopper. Okay, I'm going to sort of modern English this. Uh, the cricket and the grasshopper went in here to fight with helm and habern already. Um, the flea bear the banner as a doughty knight. The cherubid trumpeted with all his might. <laughs> um, and that, of course, is then translated hmm. into Latin by the student. Um, okay. But anyhow, so <laughs> I don't know where, you know, the cricket and the grasshopper. I'm not sure. I don't think anyone is sure exactly like where they came from. I mean, why them? The cricket and the grasshopper. Um, But of course, the point, you know, that basically hundreds of years later, um, Lewis Carroll ends up writing this poem, The Lion and the Unicorn, that's very much in that same vein, right? So there's a sort of long history of writing these sort of nonsense poems as a kind of learning exercise, basically. Um, Except that in the Middle Ages, you also had to translate it into Latin. So... (laughs) Um, anyway so this is what they're doing in school Um, and yeah you know there are a lot of other fun things Um, as students get older there are more double entendres in the songs (laughs) Um, but yes but these are some of the the basics Um, yeah so cool Um, let's see here a couple others I saw a sparrow shoot an arrow by an harrow into a barrow Wow. Yes. Um, and that's funny I like, because... Hmm? No, I like that one. It feels like difficult to preserve the um, lovely quality of the uh, rhyme if yeah. you translate it into yes. Latin. Well, this is sort of the, the point, right? Is that you learn yeah. these things. Um, but also the interesting thing there is that um, a slightly later poem, Who Shot Cock Robin, um, includes a, a sparrow who shot an arrow. Oh, So there's a sort of interesting sense of, you know, that some of these things clearly are kind of cliches that stick around mm-hmm. and show up then in other places. Um, there's also sort of riddles. Um, so there's some famous riddles, um, the Exeter Notebook. So who, what is higher than is the tree? The answer is heaven. Um, what is deeper than is the sea? The answer is hell. What is sharper than is the thorn? Hunger. Hmm. What is louder than is the horn? Thunder. What is swifter than is the wind? Thought. What is richer than is the king? Not. Oh. <laughs> no. <laughs> nope. 
Jesus, yeah. That doesn't rhyme. That doesn't rhyme, no. Okay. The, the answers don't have to rhyme. The questions rhyme. Yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, so all of these things are part of childhood. <laughs> but, you know, we have them because they're part of, like, school exercises. So you got to imagine that some of them are being, like, chanted on the playground, so to speak. Yeah. But they also then get copied down and sort of translated. Perhaps appropriately, those those remind me very much of the, the riddle game in um, uh, The Hobbit. Yes, that comes from Old English. There are some Which, famous Old English riddles. Yeah. yeah, I used to always try to translate that the last one, box without hinges, key, or lid, yet golden treasure inside is hid. I, I tried to translate that into a couple of different languages, which with, I think, varying success. Yes. Awesome, yeah. But, but that's yeah. exactly the point. And the old, that's, it's very much in the style of sort of the old English riddles. Um and that's exactly why that game happens. Yeah, Tolkien was a medievalist. Yes. And specifically an old English scholar. Um, and yeah, <laughs> that is exactly why that is there. Um, and yeah, you have so other sort of nonsense but slightly older rhymes. Um, three headless men played at ball. One headless man served them all. Um, which is in another collection, a, slightly, a slight variation. Um, I saw three headless play at ball. A handless man served them all, while three mouthless men lay and laughed, three legless men away them drew. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the logic, or lack, you know, like the sort of silliness, mm -hmm. sounds like a lot of um, modern plays on words and yeah. stuff. No, absolutely. Right? So, um, so anyway, so this is sort of the sense of, right, what kids are doing for fun, but also for school, basically. You know, okay. we only have these because of their school notebooks, mm -hmm. but they're also clearly part of fun and games. And you can imagine some of these rhymes being used for, um, you know, variations of games um, that we're going to talk about in a sec. But um, yeah, but we have them because they're copied down in this context, which is important to remember because um, this is the thing. Things only last generally if they're written. I mean, this is the problem. They have to be written down at some point. Um and so the context really matters. Uh, a lot of these get published separately, or, you know, not necessarily with the context stated. Mm -hmm. And it is a sort of interesting thing to think about. The things that actually got written down by students in their notebooks, people put random stuff in their notebooks all the time, right? So <laughs> yeah, some of them might have been things they sort of jotted down initially because they liked them, and then they made them exercises. But some of them might occasionally have been set by teachers as exercises, you know, based on stuff that they remembered from being kids. Um, some of them are clearly poems or things that kids saw somewhere and liked and copied out a few lines, probably. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or heard somewhere and liked and copied out a few lines to translate. Um, but, you know, that it's still a, this sort of interesting sense of <laughs> school, right? Like, so these are things that they thought worth writing down or wanted to write down or figured maybe they wouldn't be in trouble for writing down, because, of course, someone's <laughs> going to see their notebook, right? I mean, yeah. they know the teacher's going to read their notebook to check their translation or whatever, probably. So, um, yeah, it's a sort of interesting thing to think about the context of how these things have, have got to us. I like the idea, I like as, um, I don't know exactly how to put this, like the approach to Latin as not, you know a dead language that isn't spoken anymore, but something that they can translate things that they're getting in their modern life into Latin. Yes. 
Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, um, I have Winnie Illy Pooh. Yes. Right? <laughs> For example. <laughs> um, yes, it is still a fun thing. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Right. That Latin. Yes. It makes it a much more sort of um, fun, fun language on mm-hmm. some level. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, before you can read the Indian or even when you're reading the Indian, that you can also do this. Yeah. Yeah. It makes it much more fun and interactive. Um, it's a little different from like when you pick up um, a Greek textbook. Yes. And there's a ton of them that are in the public domain because people have been learning Greek forever. Yep. <laughs> uh, but, you know, a lot of the ones that I've looked at from the early 20th century, it's like you, you learn about Darius, uh, the king, mm-hmm. and Kairos and other you know, people invading other people, which is, like, great vocabulary, but not super relevant for anyone's life, so a little bit harder to, you know, fix in your memory, perhaps. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, And, yeah, if, you know, if people want, um, Canon has the Latin translations in his book for some of these, um, so you can see what they did. but yeah, and Greek, of course, was taught similarly, but Latin was the more important, right? So you don't have the same Greek context. Yeah. Um, which is why, of course, Shakespeare knew small Latin and less Greek, famously. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Johnson so nicely pointed out. <laughs> yes. My particular bias is that Greek is just a very hard language. It is also that, yeah. But I've only I've only played with Latin a little bit on Duolingo. I haven't looked through any Latin textbooks, so... Wow, is Latin on Duolingo now? What? Yeah. How did I not know this? Yeah, Holy I don't cow. know. That's hilarious. That's amazing. It talks it out loud to you and everything, too, so... Oh, what? Um... It, what would be, say, church-slash-medieval Latin or classical? I think you're gonna have to be the judge of that, All right. because I am not <laughs> an expert in Latin. Well, we're gonna see... Yes, I, I only one. picked up Duolingo because I wanted to learn Yiddish, and I started learning German Yay. in the meantime because Yiddish hasn't been released yet. So Aha. now I'm now I'm sprechen Sie Deutsch. Yes, but, also good. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, well, and this is sort of the fun um, reminder in some ways. I mean, that Latin. This is the thing, right? Because it was the language of you know world administration at the time, basically. <laughs> <laughs> administration yes. slash domination. Yes, if you if you wanted to go into the church or something, you really had to be good at it. Yes. And it was language that united Europe. It's not like nowadays you can probably get by well, I don't know. I don't know if you can get by as a priest without speaking too much Latin right now. Well you officially sort of still have to know it because the Vatican still releases everything in Latin. Mm-hmm. I mean in every other language as well, but Latin is always the first. Latin is still the official language of the Vatican. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know, as in the Middle Ages, right, depending on sort of where you're working, um, you have to know Latin. But then after that, you know, if you're interested in Byzantine, you kind of have to know Greek and Arabic. Um, there are a lot of reasons you should probably know Arabic for a large slice of sort of the medieval and classical worlds. Um, partly that's where most of the sort of classical texts were recovered from. Um, but yeah, those are sort of the big languages in the Middle Ages that the administrative worlds of kind of Europe and North Africa and sort of um, Eurasia tended mm-hmm. to cover one of those. Um, and so, yeah, you had to, you had to know them. 
whatever your local language was. Um, which is why you sort of have the, have this. Um, but yeah, but the funny thing of sort of what's been preserved because of it. So like the sort of earliest, you know, Robin Hood of Sherwood forest. Yes. Reference. Um, yeah. So there are these sort of interesting things that you get from that, that we wouldn't have if kids hadn't written them down in their books. Um, so, all right, we should probably sort of move on to like toys and games. Um, yeah. So in addition, the other point, of course, is that this is all specifically from England, um, all of these things. But this was this was how school worked sort of throughout Europe. Um, but England is one of the places that had a very strong sense of school. I mean, kids went to school. <laughs> Which is how Shakespeare did know little Latin. Yes, exactly. Even yeah. though he was the son of a glove maker, question yeah. mark? Glove yeah. maker, yeah. Um, a, yes, and a widower, I believe. Um, we put this up as an answer, I think, to one of the questions. Um, I don't think I mentioned Shakespeare's dad, but uh, the specific sort of white leather. We may have talked about this a little bit also when we talk about like female artisans and stuff. Um, there's this, this specific white leather, very high class, and that's that's what he used. So he was a very oh. sort of special high class type of glove maker. Um, which is why he became eligible. He, you know, then he became, you know, he was sort of held public office in the town, and this is why, you know, because he was, and then he, that's how he became eligible for coat of arms. And then something happened, we don't know what. There's so much speculation. I'm not going to spend any time going over it, but we don't know what happened. And he stopped showing up at meetings. Um, and they finally had to remove him from office. But they didn't for a long time, and so it's not clear what happened. Um... He never actually ended up getting the coat of arms. It was sort of shelved. But of course, Shakespeare himself, <laughs> William, <laughs> would eventually pay for this to happen on his dad's behalf, ostensibly, which is to say that it was for him, obviously, but he got it because his dad had been eligible for it. Aha. And that's why he is Mr. William Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, so yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's so the sense of, um, yeah, everyone went to school. You know, so Stratford, yeah, it had a school and everyone went. Um, so yeah, England is sort of doing well. Um, that being said... How long did most of them, how long did most of them go to um, school? Ah, well, you know, it's not super different from today. Um, kind of first grade-ish, six or seven. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, through, it kind of depended a lot on what you ended up doing, but probably mm -hmm. like 12 or something. You know, you probably got like five or six years of school, which is... Yeah fair. I mean, that's all most people did get until <laughs> recently. Yeah, that's not bad. You know, a hundred years ago, to have a high school education was great. Yeah. Well, in some you places, know. they still have, like, vocational high schools, right? So, mm -hmm. in a sense, it's similar to the beginning part of an apprenticeship, yeah. where which is what they, they would have been entering into anyway. Mm -hmm. um, of course, the funny thing is that, you know, this is the debate that always goes on, right? What the schools taught were <laughs> the liberal arts. Mm -hmm. This is what schools have always taught are the liberal arts. And then you go off and you become an apprentice or something. But you learn the liberal arts. You learn how to read and write and do math. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you learn music, right? You learn elocution, rhetoric. You might learn how to write poetry. Um, these were all skills that were considered important, right? Mm -hmm. Um for various reasons, but basically to be well-educated has always meant um, 
to know things that don't necessarily help you in your job because they somehow make you smarter. <laughs> Today, I think we call this like critical thinking. Yes. I believe is, is the, the term we use. But yes, critical thinking skills, analytical ability, right? Um, you're building up your brain muscles, however you want to put it. Um, yes. This is what schools have always done. Yes. <laughs> critical thinking is the ability to explain to your crazy uncle why the link to a website that a vaccine is going to like give you brain cancer is not legitimate accurate nowadays exactly but as a philosophy major i i co-sign the idea that there are many things that you can know that are not 100 percent relevant for your job that are also very worth knowing and that is the important point right (laughs) um and that has always been what schools taught that has always been what schools taught us and that is what schools teach us now um Mm -hmm. and yeah that is sort of the point here right um and so it's funny i mean this is but this has always been the argument so on the one hand we find it sort of you know oh my gosh like they actually went to school and they went to school for that long um shocking and amazing uh and we definitely don't expect it because you know we think of the Middle Ages as not being educated and, you know, illiteracy and all these things, which certainly there was, but not as much on some level as we tend to assume. Right. Um, and the other side, of course, the other side of that, of course, is that we absolutely um, also still in many ways are having the same arguments about why people should or shouldn't go to school for certain amounts of time or learn certain things. Right. Mm hmm. Um, and so we're still having that discussion of why do they need to know this? It's not Latin necessarily anymore, although you can still take Latin. Latin is definitely one of them. Um, yeah. But the same questions, right? Why do you need to learn this or that? You won't need to do that. You won't need to know that. And of course, that isn't the point and has never been the point. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, (laughs) how you get this English. That's how you get an English education. Yeah. Um, yeah. It feels like a very sad world where you... You know, you decide, I don't know, at, say, 15, that you're going to be a plumber and all you know about is how to do plumbing and you don't know anything else. Yeah, and that is the point, of course, of education. Um, Yeah. yeah. And that's why, you know, we had a universities episode some time ago. Yes. Um, Referring back to university. And that, of course, is where universities come from as well, which is the funny idea that... Um, learning things that you don't necessarily need to know for five or six years isn't enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Um, and so the very first universities, yes, I mean, ultimately, Bologna becomes associated with law, right? And mm-hmm. um, Paris with theology. Um, Padova with Padua, medicine. Yeah. yeah. And those, of course, do become professions. Medicine and science, we say generally, you know, astronomy things. Um, but yeah, those, of course, do become professions. They are professions. But... Um, the idea was really that, um, the same as today, everyone needed to know a certain amount to function in a society that requires people to be able to think critically. Um, and at some point, if you plan to move your way up the ladder, if you want to do things like hold public office, um, if you go into the church and you want to move your way up past parish priest, um, 
you know, if you are in a guild, but you want to become the guild master, things like this, right? That there are, there's a level of knowledge that you need <laughs> that somehow goes beyond the things immediately necessary for your job and even the things that you got in what we would now call like grammar school. Mm-hmm. Right, that somehow there is more that you need to know. Um, and that is what universities are for. <laughs> that is ultimately where they come from, right? Um, and very much is sort of like, you know, the Academy, the Lyceum, mm-hmm. Plato and Aristotle. Um, yeah, students go there and you learn from the best at sort of ostensibly a higher, higher level. Um, and then your critical thinking is that much better and you are now in a position to, you know, lead others, basically. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's there is a very sort of interesting sense about about education at the time. Um, yeah. And actually, so I figured um, we're probably just going to get sort of into toys. And I think we might have to save games for next time. Um, OK, but toys um, were actually sometimes seen as as part of learning. So we'll talk about sort of that aspect of toys. Um, That's funny because nowadays um, you can't, you know, you can't throw a rock in a toy shop without hitting something that's supposed to be educational. Yes. Yeah. In one way or another. Yeah, of course. Even for like very small children, it's somehow like improving their brain wiring or I don't even really know. Yeah, coordination probably. Yes, coordination, Um, spatial referencing. Um you know, everything is sold on its educational mm-hmm. merits. Yeah. Um, but this has always been kind of true. So one of the oldest toys we know about are rattles. Rattles mm-hmm. have existed since who knows when. I mean, you know, it's one of the easiest yeah. things to make because you just have to create something with a ball in the end and you enclose a bead or a, a stone or whatever inside it. And then, you yeah, know, shake, shake. you could use like a dried gourd. Yeah, absolutely. Those little things. So yeah, they're yeah. super old. Um, but Aristotle, in the sort of in Aristotle's time, um, they thought that maybe a previous philosopher, um, Archytas, had created the rattle. Um, but anyway, in oh. the politics, um, this is uh, chapter eight or whatever, uh, thirteen forty. Um, <laughs> we'll post a link. Um, but anyway, he specifically says, um, this is the translation, of course. Um, at the same time. Uh, boys must have some occupation, and one must think Archytas's rattle a good invention, which people give to children in order that while occupied with this, they may not break any of their furniture, for young things <laughs> cannot keep still. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. So this is great, right? You give it to your toddler so they're something to shake around so that they don't, like, you know. Destroy everything else in the yeah, house. Yeah, exactly, which is brilliant. Um and then he says, and this is great because this is, of course, Aristotle, right? Um, whereas a rattle is a suitable occupation for infant children, education serves as a rattle for young people when older. Hmm. Right? Um, which is sort of brilliant, right? The education is, this is what we say today, right? School keeps kids out of trouble, which has definitely always been a point. Now everyone knows mm-hmm. with COVID, right? School is the place you send your kids so you can do stuff. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is also a reason that, you know, England had schools. And that the rest of Europe and the Middle Ages had schools, right? This is, mm-hmm. yeah, you need to be able to send your kids to the local parish to do something for a few hours every day. Um, but also, yeah, education, making them use their brains, it occupies them, you know, they won't go around breaking things or getting into trouble. Um, all right, so Aristotle says, um, and then he actually adds, this is great, 
Um, Such considerations, therefore, prove that children should be trained in music so as to take part in its performance. It is not difficult to distinguish what is suitable and unsuitable for various ages um, and to refute those who assert the practice of music is vulgar. So here we have Aristotle defending the arts against, of course, idiots Hmm. like Plato. Um, And he says, (laughs) inasmuch as (laughs) – I'm just saying, you know, this is good for Aristotle. Shots fired. Yeah. Um, All right. So inasmuch as it is necessary to take part in the performances for the sake of judging them, it is therefore proper for pupils when young actually to engage in performances. Uh, When they get older, they should be released from performing, but be able to judge what is beautiful and enjoy it rightly because of the study in which they engaged in their youth. Hmm. All right. So he acknowledges you might not want your kid to become a musician, (laughs) (laughs) right? But they should be trained in it. They should be able to recognize it. Um, know what is good and what isn't, what's beautiful, what isn't, that this is an important thing for them to know, right? Yeah. And so, you know, when they're older, they will be able to judge it um, because they will have done it when they were young, right? Um, And that's, yeah, so music will teach them things. Um, And this is, of course, to be fair, the Greeks also thought of music and math as being very closely related, which they are, and we kind of forgot for a few hundred years and have re-realized Right. All the sort of ads like put your kid in orchestra because they'll be good at math. Oh, I was going to say Doug Hofstadter's whole book about go to Leschebach. Yes. Right. That's sort of yeah. his. Yeah. Now I feel like, oh, that's not that creative. The Greeks knew that, dude. Yes. But, but we did like you know. forget. We definitely forgot that for a long time. Right. Yeah. And so then it was sort of recovered in the modern era past few decades. Right. To save music programs because it makes kids like better at math. Of course, the point is mm-hmm. like they're very closely related. Yeah, they are. Um, but so Aristotle here saying, you know, yes, this is a good thing about education. <laughs> but yes, the rattle, what the purpose of the rattle, right? And then education and music when you get older, progress behind or beyond the rattle, but same sort of idea, right? Um, so, uh, so that's, of course, a toy. Um, other toys, so dolls, we mentioned this, right? Parents sort of dressing up their kids, kids dress up dolls, right? Dolls are, of course, astonishingly old. Um, you know, way back into prehistory. One of the things, though, about dolls is that um, when you dig one up, you never know if it's an act- if it's a doll that a kid played with or if it's a votive object, right? Which is right. to say, a little miniature figure that was dedicated to a god or for some religious purpose. Because mm-hmm. um, of course, they look the same, right? The interesting thing is that, of course, they frequently may have been the same. Um, and so there's a point. <laughs> Um, or mentions this, that in England, of course, we get the dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII. Um, and there was a preacher, Roger Edgeworth, preaching sort of right after this happened, um, complained that people were carrying away the religious figures for children to play with as dolls. Yeah. Oh. Um, so, you know, I mean, the, the difference between a votive figure and a doll really is kind of only context. Hmm. Um, and I think we may have talked about this, you know, when we talked about sort of devotion to the Christ child, but, you know, Marjorie Kemp has these images where she sort of imagines, you know, getting to swaddle Jesus. Um, or she also um, meets a woman who has a doll who is, you know, basically a doll of Jesus. I mean, um, and women are sort of allowed to dress him and play with him as though he's the baby Jesus. But, you know, as a doll. Um, okay. And it's a devo- it's, so it's clearly a devotional object, 
but also mm-hmm. at, in a sort of technical That's sense, a, a doll. Yeah. <laughs> right? In that it is a figurine that you dress up and play with, but meant more for adults than for children. Right. Right. Um, but anyway, but so this sense of, right, it, there is an education behind it. You know, hmm. I mean, you're learning how to sort of play with your kids and, you know, fast forward mm-hmm. to like Ibsen's dollhouse where Nora says, you know, I played with my dolls and now I play with my children and, you know, I'm, mm-hmm. her husband and her dad played with her like she was a doll and, you know, <laughs> there's some huge problems here, certainly. We're reinstilling patriarchy and all these things, but no, that's not entirely the purpose. Um, they ask you um, at a certain point in your in your child's development, like around two years old, you know, they give you these questionnaires about how they're developing. And one of the the questions they ask is if you give them a doll, do they like take care of it? Do they do this and that with it? So Ooh, there's it's like, sort of like weapon out of the head or something. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's like, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> because I find dolls that look like human beings kind of creepy. So I was right. kind of like, I don't know for my own child, but he takes care of like his little dog you know, stuffed stuffed doggies. So yes. Yes. Yeah, a teddy bear would serve just as good a yeah. place, arguably. Yeah. But apparently there is something um something that is very basic and developmental about like learning to take care of, of yes. babies and stuff like that. Yeah. And I'm sure, you know, today I'm sure it gets labeled things like empathy versus psychosis. Um <laughs> but yeah, absolutely, right? Um, and part of it's yes. mimicry, right? Kids mimic adults. So it's not just adults dressing up their kids to sort of be mimics, mm-hmm. but kids do mimic adults. And that's certainly one of the things, right? You see people taking care of, like, a younger sibling, um, or on, you know, today, of course, on TV. Back in the day, you could just look around your village. Um, yeah, right? You recognize that this is a thing that people do. Yeah. And so your desire to care for others. Yeah. Um, this also means, of course, right, they're other fun related. So, um, there were some early medieval or maybe, or late medieval or maybe early Tudor, um, toy cooking utensils that have been dug up by archaeologists. And, um, these seem to be basically, you know, one of the most prevalent things today for sure are things like kids' little cooking sets. Oh, yeah. Um, Toy kitchen. Yeah. And this seems to have been a thing at least since the late Middle Ages. You know, obviously you had to be wealthy enough to afford it. But yeah, a little toy kitchen. Um, And there's a bit of a question, you know, it's one of these things you dig it up, you can't be 100% sure. So they're like, well, maybe it had another Mm -hmm. purpose. But pretty clearly it's like, it's for kids to play with. Yeah. Like a little dolly tea set or whatever. Yeah, (laughs) The kids at our daycare have a whole bunch of like old cooking utensils that were too worn out to be used in the house's actual kitchen, so they became part of the the kids' playthings. Awesome. And so I wonder, like, you know, you definitely wouldn't necessarily be able to tell if you dug something like that up. Was it a kid's toy? Was it, you know, are you just finding it in a trash heap because right. it was done for? Well, in this case, I mean, because but... they're all small replicas, basically. Ah. Right? Yes. So um, it's, you know... They, that's clearly kind of the point. Um, and I suppose because you wouldn't necessarily dedicate, like, toy kitchen stuff to Jesus, right? That's not, mm-hmm. although maybe you would, right? Because, see, and that's sort of the question, right? Um, yeah. But probably this is from a sort of kid's toy toy set, yeah. Um, and, oh, it's also worth pointing out, by the way, um, that 
doll. So the word was poppet or puppet, um, which just comes from sort of a Latin for girl, hmm. pupa, um, which comes to mean also just any image of a girl. So um, the same thing is true in Greek. There's this type of statue that's like the young girl, it's the Kore. Right, Cory just meant young girl, but this is now mm-hmm. our sort of name for the statue. Um, and their name as well, basically. So, um, yeah, so the Latin sort of just for girl, that came to mean like an image just of a girl, hoopa, came to mean puppet or poppet. Um, and that just meant a doll, right? So it would frequently be a girl doll for a girl, right? So we're mm-hmm. definitely instilling this in, <laughs> in girls. Um, but eventually that, of course, it comes to mean any figure. Um, and... From there, you know, puppet or puppet, um, any sort of figure that can be played with. But that's also why, you know, when things are made of clay, a little clay figure, it could be a kid's toy, it could be votive, it's, it can be unclear. Um, mm-hmm. There are some, there's some really sort of interesting things. Um, there's a hollow bird that was dug up um, that, like, is on a little stand, and when it pivots, its tongue sticks out of its beak. Um, that is presumably a toy. I mean... <laughs> You know, you can never be sure, but, like, probably. Um, there were also the medieval version of cutouts, like mm-hmm. cutout dolls. Like, they didn't necessarily do paper dolls, of course, because parchment was the thing at the time. And even once you get paper, it takes a little bit for it to be super cheap. Um, but yeah. you did have, um, like, flat metal sheets where things, uh, toys would be stamped out. Oh, um, okay. And you could, like, twist them off and, you know. Or buy them stamped out, and then you'd like run a ribbon through them or something, and you could make them kind of like a marionette. Or um, they didn't necessarily have moving parts, but you know you could sort of puppet them around. Um, and then, of course, you know metal toys. If you're rich, of course, gold and silver. If you're not, lead and tin. <laughs> <laughs> um, but things like soldiers, horses, knights on horses. You know, knights without horses. Oh, yes. <laughs> soldiers, of course, being distinguished by the fact that they're not knights. Right. Right. Blood soldiers continue to be a thing up, I don't know, in like old, I want to say like Victorian slash Edwardian books. There's always boys playing with lead soldiers or tin soldiers. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Tin soldiers. I think Looking Glass has been doing a Christmas show, like the Little Tin Soldier, I think it's called. Yes. I got ads for that. Yes. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Right. This is one of those, you know. Again, forever and ever and ever, little toys, right? Mm-hmm. Little dolls, probably for girls to take care of, little sort of war figures, probably for boys. Um, you know, Toy Story, you've got the pl- little green men, the plastic soldiers, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, you could also, of course, mini, mini castles if you could afford it. Um, the funny thing is, today we tend to think of doll houses more for girls, but of course a castle that you're going to like siege or something with your soldiers would be, you know, for boys potentially. So mm-hmm. that's, this is before things came in pink and blue. So it's not necessarily as obvious <laughs> um, who that would be for, obviously for someone richer. Um, but yeah, so again, right, all the sorts of similar toys that we've got today. Um, also things that are maybe more trouble, like pea shooters. <laughs> <laughs> um and that type of thing, that is also definitely around. Um, and then, obviously, sort of things like tops, right? Spinning tops that you could, like, wind up in things. Um, windmill, uh, you know, little windmills 
What do we call them yeah. today? You know, they spin around pinwheels. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're you know they thought of them as little windmills on a stick. But yes, um, absolutely. So those were those were around. <laughs> um, yeah, and then one of the other things, of course, there's discussion of what you you were supposed to do yourself. So the same then as now, right? People are like, oh, now kids have all their toys made for them, but you used to have to like go out and play and make your own stuff. Well, they said the same thing then. Um, so <laughs> instead of like having tin soldiers or whatever, whatever, you're supposed to like go out and like gather flowers and build houses with sticks. Um, or you might use like bread and stocks and rags to make whatever you wanted to make. Um, there's a Scottish poem from the 15th century that discusses this, right? Um, it says you could make a horse, a ship, a spear, a sword, or a doll with this stuff. Nice. Um, yeah, you made them yourself. It's all like and a continual stuff. version of, like, getting the kids out of the house to do something so that the yes. parents can accomplish <laughs> something. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, again, right, there's this sort of really interesting sense of, um you know, what what you can do, um, but a similar debate, right? Have your stuff made for you <laughs> or make it yourself the way you're supposed to. Go outside, you know, find your own stuff. Um, yes, right. This is very much a sort of debate that, that definitely continues. Yeah. Um, so all of that is definitely um, sort of important. Um, one of the other funny things is there's actual discussion um, that of kids being given jewelry, obviously, if you were rich enough, um, because it was shiny, and they could bite on it, and it wouldn't hurt the jewelry. <laughs> ah. <laughs> Presumably them. Um, and so certain types of jewelry brooches and stuff that were shiny and you could be bitten, that this is also something that you might give to kids to play with. Um hmm. And I would say, you know, parents give their kids their earrings today. Like, this is still kind of a thing, <laughs> right? My so. mother bought some necklaces with big uh, silicone beads on them, like in bright colors. And they're sort of like a teething baby can chew on them. Mm -hmm. Or you can wear it as a really bright colored necklace. Or presumably yep. both. Like, presumably you're holding the baby and it's, like, reaching up and grabbing yes. it. But. Yeah, my mom had a necklace I really, like, my mom had a necklace I really enjoyed chewing on. I remember this very specifically. Mm -hmm. And I think it was maybe a little bit elastic. So, like, you know, your teeth would go kind of between the beads in this really, like, great fashion. <laughs> yeah, I have these memories. Um, but definitely, right? So the funny, the ways in which this is absolutely still a thing because kids are going to grab stuff. <laughs> Um, you might as well give them the shiny thing to b bite on. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. This being, of course, like before iPhones and stuff, but yeah. Um, so Honestly, cheaper to give the child the jewelry than the iPhone, probably. Yes, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, definitely, definitely. Depends on what yeah. you're wearing, but I don't wear $700 jewelry every day. Of, right. So, you know. Exactly. Right. And this is, of course, the point, again, that, um, yeah, what, you know, the quality of the jewelry depended, obviously, on your class. Yeah. Yes. Um, but some other things, sort of, uh, just as a commentary, um, that you could collect outside were things like stones or pits, right, from fruit, things like this. Um, and those are things that would also be used in games um, as sort of currency in games or as markers. Um, so... 
definitely a sense of, you know, yeah, getting kids sort of out, out of the house. Um, there's also another sort of the fun of the dissolution is that it buried some stuff that was helpful. Um, in this case, though, um, a friary became a classroom and the desks, you know, the sort of choir stalls became the desks for the students. Um, and apparently a ton of stuff, you know, kids dropped all sorts of stuff that got buried under the floor eventually. And it was... As they do. Yes, excavated in the 70s, the 1970s. Um, and they found... Um, for example, a lot of stuff, iron and copper, um, arrowheads, buckles, buttons, pins, fragments of knives, small trinkets, including a cross and bells, um, little copper tags from the ends of laces, which is fun, hmm. you know. Um, today, laces tend to have plastic on the ends, I think, but they used to have little metal. Yeah. Sometimes they still do, I think. Um, which Orem theorizes were probably used as currency for games, like pits or things like that um also glass beads paste beads um beads of bone two children's teeth <laughs> discs and counters made from tile and shale and small balls like marbles of green and red sandstone brick and clay um which you know like marbles meaning of course that these were balls that may very well have been used to play marbles which is a specific type of game um, but also may have been used for sort of other types of games as well. Cool. Um, yes. So that is what was found in one classroom, <laughs> um, you know, from the 1500s, left wow. behind by kids. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I figure we can talk maybe a little bit more about actual games and stuff next time. Yeah, but we could add a few more things that we'll talk about again next time. Um, there are things like which I think we haven't mentioned as toys yet. Um, stilts. This is a thing that exists. Um, and of course, hoops. You could do a lot of things yes. with hoops. You could roll them. You could, you know, spin them. You could twirl them. <laughs> um, and hobby horses, I think we have mentioned before and we'll mention again. Um, okay. Yes. So, yeah. And then we'll talk more about like actual specific games and stuff next time. But. All of these cool. things. Yeah. So there we are. Kids learning. All right. <laughs> kids playing games. Kids being educational. Oh, I think I wrote yes. my hands next to the microphone. Well. Oh, well. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So all of this sort of really fun stuff. I mean, you know. Yeah. Childhood, it's kind of the more it changes, the more it stays the same. Like, yes, they didn't have video games, but um, there are still a surprising number of ways in which childhood has not changed, I think is the point. Yes. <laughs> yes, it certainly sounds like they were out and about and doing basically the stuff that I remember from my childhood, yeah. mm -hmm. which is kind of cool, for sure. honestly. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, and, you know, I see friends, of course, to this day, right? If you live in a place where it gets cold enough, you spray the backyard and you create an ice rink. Um, <laughs> you know, back in the Middle Ages, yes. you couldn't necessarily do that yourself on purpose, although sometimes you could. But definitely ponds and stuff froze over mm -hmm. and you played Went on it, of course. Nice skated. Yeah, yeah, all sorts of – and all the things that, you know, they didn't have hockey yet, but you played similar games on ice, of course, <laughs> right? Um, with balls and sticks and stuff. Um, yeah, you know, so a lot of the stuff – again, yeah, things sort of do change and sort of, sort of don't change. The debates that we have about school and what kids should learn and 
you know, are they getting too much politics from their education? Hmm. Um, all these things are like, <laughs> they have always yes. been a thing. I mean, for hundreds of years, for thousands of years, probably, but we're only, you know, we're only going back like 800 years um, with most of what we've talked about here today. Um, but of course, you know, if we, I mean, we talked about Aristotle a few times. Um, yeah. Look at how far it goes back. Mm-hmm. You know, um, Socrates, who really started more of an undemocratic coup and did not so much corrupt the youth in the ways we think of him today. Um, nonetheless, again, right, the point of what your education can do and is dangerous. Um, yeah, I mean, these these have been for a long time, right? Part of the debate, part of the question, part of the fun about sending kids off to school to get rid of them, but also so hopefully they do learn something and you know, become able to think for themselves and yes. recognize what's good and what isn't good and stuff like that. Yes, yep. it apparently has always been a hope of think for yourself, but in the way that I would like yes. you to, which is a complicated <laughs> um, needle to thread for yes. everyone involved. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, you know, hey, I mean... And I think in some ways remembering that how long this has been happening, right? And yeah. that silly nursery rhymes and tongue twisters and um, that all this stuff, how long it's been around, how long people have been doing this, you know, um, it's it's good, <laughs> right? Con- it's a sort of sense of like continuity. Things can change drastically and yet also in some ways they, they don't. So mm-hmm. we move on. <laughs> we survive. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Well, um, as an educational podcast, I'm pleased for us to be part of the uh, eternally questionably corrupting influence of education. Yes. Um, and we'll leave it there for now. Yay. <laughs> so uh, thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about us. Um, you can find us on Facebook at Ask a Medievalist, and we also have a website under the same name, askamedievalist.com. You can see episode notes, um, you can contact us through either medium, and I guess they're the same medium, which is the web, but through either forum. Um, and yeah, you can drop us an email as well at questions at askamedievalist.com. So, until next time, uh, keep it medieval! Ask a Medievalist is a production of This Can't Be That Hard Studios and is not endorsed, acknowledged, or condoned by Virginia Commonwealth University or any of its constituent departments. Our theme music is Veni Veni Venias from Carmina Burana by Carl Orff, performed by the MIT Concert Choir and licensed under a Creative Commons Attributional Non-Commercial License version 3.0. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, why not tell a friend? For more on today's topic, including sources, annotations, and corrections, visit our website at www.askamedievalist.com. And if you have questions, feel free to drop us an email at questions at askamedievalist.com. Thank you.